Hey guys, and welcome to Not Another Fitness Podcast, uh, the place where you get to know the person behind the whiteboard. I have a very special guest today. Um, I'm very excited, to be honest with, any, with everybody out there. Super excited to have Coach Michael Boyle on the show today. Going to give you guys a small intro because if I was here giving an intro of all his accomplishments, um, we'd probably be here for a very long time just because you've been in, in the field for a very long time, coach. So um, started or co-founded Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in 1996. And I'm mentioning this because it, is, um, it was one of the first profit strength and conditioning companies in the world. They exist, they exist for one reason, to provide performance enhancement training for athletes of all levels, athletes trained um, from junior high school students all the way to all-stars in almost every major professional sport. Uh, prior to founding Michael Boyle Strength and Conditioning, Coach Michael Boyle served as the head strength and conditioning coach in Boston Univers University for 15 years. Wow. From 1991 to 1999, he also served as a strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Bruins of the National Hockey Team, which is the NHL, for those of you that don't know what that means, NHL guys. Um, he also served as a strength and conditioning coach for the, uh, for the 1998 U.S. Women's Olympic Ice Hockey Team, who, which uh, won a gold medal in N Nagano. Is that how you say it, coach? Nagano, actually. Nagano, Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask you about that because I'm like, what? I need to I need to find out more about that. Uh, served as a consultant in the development of the U.S. Hockey National um, Team Development Program in Ar Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I, I think this is awesome. The, in 2012, Coach Boyle was named Strength and Conditioning Consultant for the Boston Red Sox. And uh, guess what happened in 2013? The Boston Red Sox won uh, the World Series. And well, now you're coaching, you're speaking, you're all over the world. I, I remember last time I saw you at perform, I think you were flying in from, from China, I believe so. So, um, so yes, that is just a small glimpse into coach Michael Boyle. Uh, welcome. And thank you for oh, you, giving me some of your time. You might've been at World Golf. Yeah, you're definitely. Part, you you broke out. Yeah, you broke up there a little bit, Coach. Let me see if I move my laptop. Is it better? Is this better now? Yeah, I said, I was wondering, is this strictly, um, I think, are you going to use the video on this or is it just audio? Because they say sometimes these come through better without. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the video. I'm going to put it on my YouTube if that's okay oh, with you. Okay. Right. No, that's fine. Oh, that's fine. I just okay. was thinking I'd click my video off to see if we got better because you were, you were kind of getting a little. Yeah, I, I got a little bit closer to the um, to the Wi-Fi, which is to my right. I think it's okay. to your right. Uh, so yeah, I think the internet should be good now. There should be no. Um, yeah, we should be. We, you seem much better. For a while, I was getting okay. that kind of that there underwater you. feel where it sounds like you were <laughs> talking underwater. Okay, so, I mean, <laughs> glad I got to fix it. Yeah. Um, so um, welcome, welcome to the show, Coach. How are you doing during these uh, crazy and just uncertain times? Ah, am I frozen? Actually, you're still breaking up a little bit. Sadly. Still breaking up? Okay. Let me see if I get a little bit closer. Yeah, you were a little frozen. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I got to keep running around good? here. But 
No, it's, it's all I good. Make sure you get a quality product out of this deal. No, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, is it is it good now? So, I know I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, it, it's, yeah. Perfect. You know, I said this time period stinks, to be honest. I mean, you can see I have my, you know, I have my mask. I, you know, it's like, you know, working in a mask and hoping to stay open and work every day what the state is going to do in terms of, of you know, capacity or restrictions. I mean, we've we've actually handled it really well. We've come back to a pretty good spot and a really good spot considering a lot of fitness people are, I mean, you know, if you're in California or you're in New York, I mean, you're, you're, you know, borderline out of business. So we can't really cry about that part too much, but uh, it's certainly not ideal. It, yeah. Yeah. You were just on the news last week, I believe so. Right. And like they did like a special, I was. we got national news on that. They did, they filmed a local thing about, um, the restrictions and it, the uh, the national feed picked it up. So I was on uh, ABC, I don't know, World News Tonight or whatever it was. I don't even know. I, I saw the local feed, but then people started telling me that they saw it all over the U.S. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, we've tried. There's a guy named Frank Nash out here who's done a really good, excuse me, he's done a really good job of um, trying to, uh, to create awareness of what, you know, the fitness people are going through. And he had had an opportunity to to get somebody on the news, but he's in Worcester, which is sort of central mass about an hour from me. And they were looking for somebody local. And okay. I'm, uh, I'm somebody local who doesn't struggle to talk in front of a camera. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually surprised how effective the, how effective we've been as a, as a, as a fit, yeah, the fitness industry itself, just because I feel like we've been attacked so much in the sense where they're, they're not making any, they're not supporting themselves with any like strong, scientific claims to close us down because um, isn't the transmission rate super low at, at facilities? So, and the difference is what's happened to us, at, not to us because it's, it's everybody in fitness, but there were two super spreader events, but the event that they're using to sort of paint fitness as a negative was actually a South Korean aerobics class. If you go back and look for the original study, there was a um, aerobics class where there was a really big, like everybody in the class caught COVID, but okay. they had, I don't know what it was, you know, 20 people in 600 square feet or something. You know, it was, it was a fairly confined okay. space. Yes. And, but the result of that was that gyms spread COVID, you know, and you're kind of like, eh, I don't know if, you know, aerobics <laughs> class, you know, people jammed in a room like that doing, you know, aerobic type activity is really indicative of what a gym is. You know, I could see them saying classes, fitness classes might need to be better distanced or better spaced or have better air exchange. But there's just this kind of very quick knee jerk reaction. And the other one was a spin class. The other big, you know, and again, a bunch of people jammed, you know, on spin bikes jammed in a room. Everybody's huffing and puffing. And people are saying people are always huffing and puffing in gyms. And I'm like, people aren't always huffing and puffing in my gym. Trust me. I mean, that's definitely not what we're about. So, um <laughs> I think, and that's part of the problem is we're trying to create a better perception of gyms for people. Like we're saying to people, like, you don't even know what we do, you know, come and watch us and see what we do before you decide you're going to shut us down. True. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. It closed for three months and then opened up. The good thing is we've, we've dealt really well with these restrictions, but I mean, we've got orange construction barriers up separating, you know, demarcating spaces. I mean, it's, it's crazy what we've had to do to, to make it work, but we've made it work. So I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to complain too vigorously. 
Okay. Is where I still. So gyms in Boston or in Massachusetts, they're, they're operating, right? Because that they're open. technically open at 25% capacity. Oh, the shit. problem with that is, you know, what is your capacity? I don't know if any gym actually has a capacity. You know what I mean? So they, there's all these just poorly thought out things yeah. that are kind of political in nature. And so for us, I mean, you know, we've got 22,000 square feet. So what's our capacity? We don't know. You know, if we, even if we said one person for every hundred square feet, that gives us 220 capacity. So we can operate at 25% of that, which, you know, 55 or so people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually exactly 55 people. And we vary, we don't ever get that high. So we're okay. Well, that's, it's, I'm glad to hear that you guys are are opening up because gyms out here in California are really struggling. And and like, I don't even know how, some of them are even surviving some of my friends, but yeah, I know I have some friends who are, I mean, they're, they're hanging on by their fingernails and I keep talking to some people who think, yeah, we next week we might just close. Cause we had that, you know, during the summer we were like, gee, do we just, you know, tell the landlord we'll leave the keys, you know, have a little, little yeah. warehouse sale, you know, bring everybody in, let people buy whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I won't say that that thought did not come up at one point. It, it's scary thought, I assume, right? Yeah. I mean, for us to look and think, you know, an asset that you've been basically building for almost 25 years yeah. suddenly has no value. And, you know, which that's, I think, the hard part when you realize, you know, at some point you think, hey, I might sell this business or I might pass it on to my kids or I might do whatever. And then you think, wow. And that's like, same, you know, but it's happening to people in the restaurant business. It's happening to people all over the, all over the country in lots of different businesses where suddenly... Um, you know, not only are they losing their livelihood, but they're losing an asset that at some point they thought, um, you know, might be part of their retirement plan. And now suddenly they're thinking this thing's just going to be closed down. Yeah. yeah. Restaurants were hit really hard too. I was watching a uh, Guy Fieri special the other night um, and they were covering some restaurants where they had over 500 employees and they were down to less than 20. So just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Restaurant business here has been decimated. I think they said 40% of the restaurants have closed and probably will not reopen in, you know, in the Boston area. Wow. So that's, a, that's been, um, that's been one of the hardest, if not the hardest area hit. Yeah. That, and the, I mean, the difference is, you know, airlines and hotels and things like that have also been affected, but they're more, um, you know, big companies. So it's not, uh, it, it's not necessarily, a, you know, a small entrepreneur who gets affected by that particular situation. It's, it's yeah. a big publicly traded company. You know, airlines were, took a big hit. My, my brother uh, was telling me, I think Delta was blowing through and don't quote me on this, but I think they were blowing through like $40 million a, year, a day when the pandemic started. So that's like, they're blowing through some crazy money. Um, yeah, I don't doubt it. <sighs> okay. So, Let's let, let's get to talking about something a bit more positive. Um, COVID talk. <laughs> yeah, enough COVID talk. We we see that we see that everywhere, <laughs> um, and everybody's a specialist now. So um, let let's talk about something a bit more happy. So, what well, one? I, I guess I guess the the premise of the show, or, or just just kind of how we, we always use, just get uh, started talking is. I, I asked the person who's on the show to just kind of take us through their story of how of how they started and how they eventually ended up being in the 
uh, fitness industry. For instance, myself, I, I started going to CSUN, which is California State University, Northridge, majored in business for two years, ended up transferring out to our local community college, COC, and then somehow got involved in the soccer team because I played soccer since I was a kid. Uh, played soccer and then I decided I wanted to be a strength coach and then from from there on it was a pretty smooth sailing but it, it did take some time for me to to find out that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life so um, coach would you mind sharing your story with us today well you know it's funny I've done so many podcasts over the last um, whatever nine months I feel like I've told this story a lot but the thing you have to understand when I started college this idea didn't even exist. So as far as I knew, there was no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach. And um, I went to college and I had the intention of, I thought I was going to be an athletic trainer. Okay. That's what I went to school for. And as I was in college, I, I always, I, I, I said, you know, my, my outliers moment, if you've ever read outliers, they know that outliers is all about um, sort of, you know, easily, explained explanations for things that are supposedly not easily explained. And um, I show up the first day of school and my dorm director is a guy named Mike Wojcik. If you follow the NFL, Mike Wojcik was the longest tenured guy in the NFL, just retired last year from the Dallas Cowboys. Mike Wojcik uh, is a walking trivia question because he shares uh, uh, with Tom Brady, the record for most Super Bowl rings. He has six and Brady has six. They're the only two people in the history of the NFL with six. So he was my dorm director. He was the track field event coach. And he was really into training. He was really smart. He was really progressive. And I immediately kind of latched on to him and started hanging out in his room and reading, you know, he had, uh, he had like every muscle and fitness, every strength and health, every Ironman magazine. He had them all in like milk crates, you know, and they were all in whatever, uh, you know, chronological order. So I could just sit there and read articles, you know, by all the, you know, the, the, the early great writers okay. in strength and conditioning. I really, it wasn't even strength and conditioning. It was basically weightlifting and bodybuilding at that point in time. Some powerlifting. I got into competitive powerlifting from hanging around with his throwers. So I'd go in and I'd work, you know, I'd work out with the throwers and I'd, uh, and then, you know, cause then it was, you know, still, there was a, still a pretty big, you know, we're talking 1978 probably it was a pretty large emphasis on just max strength. So we were all, all trying to, you know, how much can we squat? How much can we deadlift? How much can we bend? And I started getting some of his throwers to enter some meets with me. And at the same Springfield, there was another guy, T. Jones. Rusty is the second longest tenured guy in the NFL. He's now in Indianapolis. He actually retired and then came back, I think, two years ago in Indianapolis. And he's been NFL. I don't know, both been there for 20-something years. But they were both – grad students when I was an undergrad in college. Oh. So I had these incredible models. And then if you're a historian, you might've encountered the name Bill Starr. Bill Starr wrote a book called Strong Shall Survive, which was probably the first really good strength and conditioning book that was ever written. He coined the term, the big three, you know, uh, squat, bench, okay. power clean. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a, another pioneer and the guy that taught our weight training class had been a student of Bill's. Okay. So I just was surrounded by these amazing guys in college. And I realized, Hey, this is what I want to do. And, and Mike and Rusty got out and got jobs as conditioning coaches. They actually got part-time jobs that, um, because at that time I still didn't know anyone had a full-time job. Mike got hired at Syracuse 
as the track field event coach and the football strength coach. And Rusty got hired in Pittsburgh to work for then what were the Pittsburgh Maulers in the USFL and the Pittsburgh Penguins. They were both owned by the same family. The DiBartolos actually, who owned the 49ers, owned the Penguins and the USFL team at that time. But all of a sudden, I knew two guys who were coaches. And I thought, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a strength coach. And But I was still, you know, I finished my athletic training education, which I think has been really helpful for me in terms of being a better strength coach. I went, I got my certification. I took a job at Boston University as an athletic trainer. And after a couple months of athletic training, I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, I wanted to be in the weight room with the athletes, yeah. not in taking them. So I quit, quit my, um, you know, my full-time job as an athletic trainer. And I literally walked across the hall and took up residence in the weight room as an unpaid strength coach. I just, it, I think about it now that the probability that anybody would even let you do that mm-hmm. is really low. But in, uh, let's say it was probably 1982, 83. Um, and then, you know, again, outliers, who's the basketball coach at Boston university in 1982, Rick Pitino. So Rick Pitino is the basketball coach. He's, you know, really into fitness and getting his guys to work out. And he wants me to work with his basketball players. He left like in typical Rick Pitino fashion. He was gone before I ever worked for him. But another guy named John Kuster, who ended up being an NBA head coach, took over for him. And I took over strength and conditioning for the basketball team. Our point guard at that time was uh, Brett Brown, who just got fired by the 76ers. So Brett was our point guard my first year. And then the other guard was a guy named Sean Teague, whose two sons played in the NBA, George and uh, I can't think of the other Teague's name. now. I should remember both names, but both of his boys (laughs) ended up being. NBA players, but these are guys, you know, that I'm working with at this time. Um, you know, later on, I worked with, uh, Kyrie Irving's dad was our all-time leading scorer at BU, Frederick Irving. Um, you know, I mean, it was just, so there was just a lot of crazy kind of serendipity that put me, but then even stranger hockey at Boston university, I always say Boston university is probably to hockey. Like, you know, Notre Dame is to football, you know, they're one of the most, storied programs in the history of college hockey and the hockey coaches came to me. They saw what basketball was doing and they said, we want to do this with our guys. And I started meeting cause obviously, you know, uh, before the movie miracle came out, obviously the, if you watch miracle, the, you know, the Olympic four or four BU players, three of those four guys were around at that time, you know, so Dave Silk was an assistant coach with us. Mike Ruzioni was an assistant coach with us. Um, you know, the only one, uh, Jack O'Callaghan was, was, a frequent visitor, although he was not in the coaching field. And so, you know, again, you're just thrown right into like, uh, as I always say, a veritable who's who of um, the sports world. And I just kind of was intelligent to pick up the ball and run. And I became a hockey guy. Wow. No, no real hockey background. Other was a basketball coach, a swimmer in winter. Um, but suddenly the opportunity was, you know, the, the one team at Boston university that really had a chance to win a national championship was ice hockey. Oh. So I kind of hit my wagon to that group. Did, did you ever play any sports growing up? Oh yeah. I played football. I played one year of college football. Wasn't very good. You know, I always said my, my career was ended by lack of size and lack of talent, something <laughs> that affects, uh, affects far too many athletes, but <laughs> I, but I was being a like, kind of being a wannabe yeah. was a really good thing for me because that's what got me into working out. 
because I was never a great athlete. I was a good athlete who wanted to be a great athlete, but that, you know, led me to, you know, the 110 pound weight set in my basement and a bench and, you know, all these things and, you know, reading about athletes training. I remember, I'm going to say probably 1974 and 1975, I started running hill sprints because I read an article about Gail Sayers running hill sprints and how that had always helped them, you know, get faster and get in shape. And, you know, I'd go lift my little 110 pound set in my basement. And then I'd go to this little hill that I had and I'd run my hill sprints. And so, you know, when I went to Springfield, I just, it was sort of the very logical next extension of this. And suddenly, you know, here I was with some really good athletes and some really good coaches and some really smart people. And I just kind of kept pushing myself in that direction. Oh, wow. I, I, I didn't know you uh, played football. That's, that's so awesome. Were you ever into, into any other sports? Like not necessarily playing. I was, I was a better swimmer than a football player, but it's a funny story. I went to, so I went to college with the idea that I was probably going to swim because I was a better swimmer than football player. And I went to the meeting again, Springfield college. It was like a division two national power. This red Sylvia was the coach. He'd been there for a million years, won all kinds of NCAA championships. And I went in and I met with him, you know, and he was very nice. He sat down, he met with me. But the only thing I remember about the conversation, he's looking at me, he said, well, Mike, the first practice is at seven o'clock in the morning. And I was like, the first, that means two practices. All I heard was that there were two practices a day. And I was thinking, I like swimming. I like racing. I like this practice very much. So I didn't hear anything else he said during that meeting. All I kept thinking about was, all right, I got to get out of here so I can run across to the freshman football meeting, which was going on at roughly the same time. So I finished up, you know, thanked him profusely and ran as fast as I could to go and get equipment for freshman football. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that, uh, that, that, that happened. (laughs) Um, Wow. So if, if you weren't coaching coach, what do you, what, what do you, what would you see yourself doing? Oh, I'd be, I'd be a carpenter. Without question. Really? Yeah. It's the only other thing I really like. Really? The only other thing I find that can occupy my whole day, like my wife and I have been, uh, we say we were HGTV people before there was HGTV. (laughs) So we've owned, honestly, she and I have probably owned somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 houses in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, And most of them, we started, she and I in a studio apartment in a three decker and, uh, you guys probably don't even know what three deckers are in uh, California, but um, you know, a very city environment, three apartments, you know, one bedroom on the apartment on the first floor, one bedroom apartment on the second. You know, we were in a studio on the third floor, but we owned that house. And, you know, we were, we, you know, renovated the apartments, rented them out, lived in the studio, and then eventually moved that one, bought another one, and then just kept buying and selling. So we've been buying and selling houses for, uh, we've been buying and selling houses for almost 40 years, probably 30. I, I probably bought my first house when I was maybe, maybe 23, 24. So, you know, 37 years. So you guys have been flipping I houses. Bought, or- <laughs> oh yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I bought a book. I can still remember. I think it was, might've been Robert Lowry was the author, but it was called how to become financially successful by investing in real estate. Mm-hmm. And it was a basic how-to book about how to find sort of, you know, the 
all the classic things they tell you about real estate, you know, the worst house in the best street and blah, blah, blah. And myself, actually at that time, myself roommate from Springfield, um, bought a house in a not nice section of Boston, um, you know, vacant lots around it and, um, you know, lots of, but it was where we could afford to buy a house. And we, again, we bought that one and we flipped it, made money, bought another one. So do you remember how much you paid for that first house you bought? $2,000. I remember exactly what I paid, bought it for 62, sold it for 120 Cause we bought right in the right area, right at the right time. Wow. Housing prices, you know, now the same house, honestly, would probably be worth 1.2 million. The same house in the same neighborhood right now in Boston. And you paid $1,000. 62, yeah. Ooh, paid wow. 62. That is, that's a, that's a bargain. But even this time last year, um, I can show you, if you look around, yeah. you can see that my floors, I put those all in. Installed all the floors in this house because we uh, we bought this house a year ago and uh, started renovating it. And the flooring estimate was much more money than I wanted to pay. Uh-huh. And in my ripe old age, and I said, I, I said I can put the floors in. So I put all the floors in. Oh damn, that's 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 so cool. How did you how did you learn to like? Was this like something that you learned from? Oh, your I learned books or? actually because this, this is pre YouTube when we started. I just started buying books, all kinds of books. Cause at that time we were buying old houses because okay. that was what we could afford. I mean, they, you know, old, you know, in terms of a lot of them were built, you know, we've owned houses that were built as far back as early 1800. Got it. Um, this is probably the newest house we've ever owned. It was built in 1984, but uh, most of the houses that we have bought were probably built like early 1900. So I started subscribing to a magazine called old, old house journal. And there's a whole little world of people who renovate old houses that, you know, that write all these much like strength and conditioning, you know, people write articles, yeah. you know, how you renovate, how you, how you repair old faster, you know, how do you run wiring in an old house? How do you, you know, how do you deal with old plumbing? And so I bought these books and I just read, I've always been a big reader anyway. So I read tons about, uh, you know, how to do things. And then I just bought tools and started teaching myself. So, I mean, I've, I can do, I don't do plumbing and electric, but I can do everything else. I can hang sheetrock. I can tile, you know, I can put a window or a door in or whatever, build the deck. That's, that's that's my, uh, awesome. (laughs) That's so cool. I've always like, I, I've always liked, like my, my dad's not to that extreme where he can uh, put uh, tile in and stuff like that, but he's kind of the same way in the sense where he, he's like, no, I'll repair this. Like, I think I know how to take care of this. So he'll just end up repairing stuff around the house. And like, I always thought that was super cool and resourceful more than anything. So that's, uh, that's, that's super cool. coach. Um, I do have another question that I want to ask you Um, in terms of kind of like fashion trends. I I, I want that. That's the way I'm going to use it. Do you see, um, the same trends get recycled in the fitness industry? Kind of like, I don't know, like maybe like ripped jeans were a thing years ago and then they came back. Do you see the same thing happening in the fitness industry at all? Um, I think everybody's always trying to develop like the next machine. Like, so I think that that's a, that never kind of goes away because 
of somebody's always trying to find the kind of the great one size all I'm going to make a million dollars kind of thing. Yeah. So I would say that trend repeats itself. The other trend that repeats itself is it keeps coming back to lifting weights. Okay. So over the course of time for me, you know, if you think I started out where it was, you know, basically lifting weights, barbells, dumbbells, you know, and you're looking, it always kept kind of coming back to barbells and dumbbells, you know, and different interpretations of barbells and dumbbells, but ultimately still barbells and dumbbells. And, you know, somebody's always trying to machines make more money for machine makers. So someone's always trying to push it back towards the machine thing. Yeah. But the reality is that it always keeps coming back to barbells and dumbbells. Yeah, that is, that, that is, um, that is, that, that is obviously true. It's just, um, like I, I asked this question just because like, I feel like at least from my perspective, I feel like bodybuilding is kind of making a, a comeback. I, I don't, I don't know if you, if you, if you guys get that same. Yeah, it's funny. I don't see that, but I, I, you know, sometimes I feel like we live in our own bubble too, though, because yeah. you know, our little kind of MBSC CFSC world is just the world that we live in. So, you know, sometimes I go to a, you know, if I went to a gold's gym on a, you know, a Monday morning and worked out, I'd probably cry and realize. Cause that's the other thing you realize is that some times I look at, it, I think, you know, one thing that not as repeated itself, but it stayed the same. We haven't made that much. You know, you still go into a gym. You know, I watched the guy today, the, the Dunkin' Donuts that I go to happens to be right <laughs> next to a planet fitness, you know, and there's a guy in there doing like half curls and he's got like elbow sleeves on. And I think, my God, if I went in there, there'd probably be some guy working out. Exactly like I worked out in high school, you know, yeah. doing, you know, 10 sets of 10 on the bench yeah. you know, down and, you know, occupying the bench for an hour all by himself while he did all these sets. And, and then that same guy probably goes and walks in the treadmill and like, you know, you sometimes you realize you think like, cause I mean, you're an exos person, you know, and you think, wow, we've made so much progress. And then sometimes you go out and look at what's actually going on and you think, well, we haven't made any progress. No one's <laughs> listening. But, and I know that's not true because we have really like, then I can look at the flip side and say, okay, my last book. So my 2000, trying to think 16, I think okay. I rewrote, you know, basically what they called new functional training for sports, but that's in eight or nine or 10 languages now. And you see people doing, you know, the training that we talk about, all over the world, you know, I can look at my Instagram and see videos from Brazil or from China or whatever and think, okay, we're having an effect. But I still don't think, I think we're still kind of, we're at the tip of the iceberg as opposed to at the, you know, we haven't got under the water yet. <laughs> that is, that's true. Uh, what countries do you see making more of a bigger stride to this? Um, I guess I want to, I'm just going to call it not modern, not modern. Func I hate using the word functional just because. Yeah, I, like I do too, but it, you know, whatever, I mean, intelligent, yes, <laughs> probably yes. just a good word, but <laughs> uh, you know, Brazil, Brazil has made a huge amount of progress. They have a big fitness market. That's very into it. We have a lot of interest in Turkey. We have a lot of interest in China, really? but we've seen, um, my book was the first book to be published in Spanish. The Spanish fitness market has been very, very slow to adapt. Yeah. And um, a couple of people that I deal with in Spain had said that um, 
you know, up, up until my book was published, everything that was written was written by sort of a university professor. So if you can imagine, and you're a little young, but like the, that would, I call that like our Tudor bumper stage of life, you know, where we had all these books written by academics who teach classes and not people who coach anybody. Yeah. And I still turn, you know, people ask me, you know, what book besides yours to read? And I'm like, get the original core performance. I always tell them the red cover core performance with Mark on the cover. Cause that's a great, I mean, that was a groundbreaking work at its time when you got the quality of the information. And if you look at the exosystem, it's still 90% what's in that book. Yeah. You know, there's small changes, but not a, not a huge amount of fundamental change since that book. So, you know, I think Mark has done a really good job through his, um, you know, this, through that company of helping to do the same thing of kind of push this forward and get people moving, I guess, in, I guess a more progressive direction is probably the best way to describe it. I apologize. I'm trying to yeah. get comfortable. That, that, that is true. Cause I feel like we have made big strides in, in more of the like athletic development of, of, uh, of our athletes. But then I also do feel like the general population got left behind a little bit, but now that there's all these new ideas being applied to the general population in responsible ways, like hopefully we can make bigger strides to kind of pushing everybody in the right direction. And we're always going to have those people that just don't believe in what we're doing. And, uh, um, well, I mean, we had a, we had a decade of CrossFit, right? I mean, yeah. which I would, consider, you know, an extremely, you know, if you looked at your periods, of whatever the fitness strength and conditioning progression that was a really regressive period in a lot of ways but in the same time i would look at i think it was a very progressive period because it woke up lots of people to the value of functional training because if you look i always say you know one of one of the things and you know again i don't know where you stand on the you know on the crossfit issue but i always tell people if you explained CrossFit to me, I would tell you that I a hundred percent agreed with it. Yeah. If you showed it to me, I would tell you, Oh my God, no, that's, that is not, but you know, the idea of using kind of big, you know, like more calisthenic type exercises, more multi-joint lifting, you know, more interval training, you know, all the things that they talk about, you're like, yeah, I remember thinking when I first heard like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then someone showed me the video. I was like, no, it's not supposed to be like that. <laughs> but, you know, it was so, you know, that was, a um, you know, in some ways, you know, maybe, you know, one step forward, two steps backward for the industry, because for a lot of people got hurt. Yeah. But a lot of people got their eyes open, too. I always said, you know, we're making millions now off the CrossFit refugees. We're making millions off of people <laughs> who really liked the idea of, you know, I love group exercise. I liked that it was hard. I just didn't like the fact that I kept getting hurt. You know, I didn't like hurting my back. I didn't like hurting my shoulder. And, um, you know, a lot of what we do from a group standpoint is probably some people would come in and be like, Oh, it's kind of similar to CrossFit. And I always tell people like, yeah, it's very similar. Just quite so dumb. You know, yeah. we're, we're not, you know, we're going to eliminate a lot of the dumbness and focus in on the smartness. So, yeah. Um, CrossFit, I, I, I like the, I like watching the CrossFit games as an entertainment kind of 
kind of thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to watch to see what these guys are doing. And I was just talking to coach Dose the other day. We're like, dude, some of the stuff they do is pretty gnarly, <laughs> but as, as a training, like when, when you, if you think of applying that as training, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And like, I I've seen program workouts in for the general population. Cause one of my friends owns a CrossFit gym and like, I've seen them in, in real life. And that is just, it's too scary to see what they have people doing, like just deadlifts for an excessive amount of reps or, or snatching for an excessive amount of reps into a clean, into just some, yeah, some very questionable things. And I'm just like, no. you know, we always about the idea. I love Charles Pollock when coined the term technical failure okay. years ago, you know, in his writings, you want to lift a technical failure and did that from Charles because I think that's the fundamental difference is this idea of we want to go till you can't do another rep correctly. You know, you, I always said that when longer targeting Egypt wanted it to target, then I don't want to do it anymore. Exactly. And I, that's been the fundamental separating point for, for us kind of versus them. And then I always, like, I just don't think, I don't think adults make good Olympic lifters. I think trying to teach Olympic lifting to adults, as I always said, it's like, you know, it's like teaching people how to shoot a gun and then encouraging them to aim at their feet. You know, it's like, um, <laughs> it's just not, it's not a good tool for the average adult. And we don't use it at all with our adults, but we use it with all of our kids. Like I teach every kid that we train, yeah. we teach, you know, it's to, to hand clean. And so I think some of it too is just, um, you know, as I said, there was some, there was some really good things. I mean, even, you know, we always, we used to emphasize the community aspect of CrossFit, you know, the, the people enjoying working out, the people cheering each other on, all that stuff yeah. was all really good. Yeah. Yeah. 100, 100%. Um, I think also looking at it from more of a, of a true, like functional standpoint, the lack of um, unilateral movements that they have is just, it, it, it leaves a lot of holes in, in their game. So, um, absolutely. Especially yeah, from my perspective, that's absolutely positively true. And, and you yeah, know, that's, another, that's another entire you know, discussion. Cause I think that, that hole can also be poked in most college strength and conditioning programs. So, you know, you look at most college strength and conditioning programs and in some ways they're like CrossFit in terms of it's just stone age kind of, you know, power lift oriented, you know, I still see these guys who are, you know, you know, they tell I'm a West side guy and I'm like, how can you, how can you be in the performance enhancement world and be a West side guy? Like, yeah. you know, whether you agree or disagree about it as a powerlifting training style, yeah. <laughs> I have a real hard sell as an athletic development um, approach, but that's just me. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I think they're very, they're very much still stuck in this whole idea of lifting heavier, lifting heavier weight is the only way to, to get better. And I mean, there is some truth to that, but we can also lift very heavy weight, um, when we're going unilateral. And that, that's why I love your, um, what is it? A unilateral deficit. Would you mind? Explaining uh, bilateral, that, bilateral deficit. Bilateral deficit. Yeah. Sorry. Um, would you mind explaining that coach? Just a little yeah, so bit. basically the, the bilateral deficit really is I, the easiest way to explain it um, is with using hand grip geometry as a, as an example. So if I gave you hand grip dynamo, diamond, mm, 
except I can't say thermometer. If I gave you a hand grip dynamometer and told you to squeeze it with hands, then I said, squeeze right, squeeze left. If I added right plus left, it would generally exceed the bilateral. That is the bilateral deficit. The basic idea is that the sum of the unilateral efforts should and will exceed the bilateral efforts. And there's, there's a lot of neurology that goes into that in terms of, um, there's a lot of theory and probably not really a lot of hard science, but the theory is basically that the body isn't made to do bilateral activity. The way the brain is, when we think about, you know, how we run or how we jump or whatever we do, we do everything in a, in a unilateral opposition type pattern. That is the way we are neurologically created. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about heavy strength training, in a bilateral sense, it's act like it's trying to override the fundamental development of your nervous system. And in a lot of ways, I think it makes you a worse athlete. Like I think heavy bilateral, because I, and I've said this numerous times, if heavy bilateral lifting worked the way that we as strength and conditioning coaches wanted it to work, there would be a lot more power lifters in the Olympics in other sports. They would be Olympics in sprinting. They would be in the Olympics in jumping events. There, there would be so many events where power lifters should dominate. If you listen to conventional strength and conditioning coaches, the idea that, you know, the more you squat, the faster you'll run or the higher you jump. And you think, well, why is it that, you know, you've got a guy who can squat a thousand pounds, but he doesn't have a 40 inch vertical jump and he can't run a four, four forty. Like, what is it that's stopping this guy from doing it? And um, part of it probably is that from a neurological standpoint, you're actually screwing your body up when you do all this heavy bilateral lifting, you're, you're literally creating inefficient neural pathways. Whereas when you, unilaterally lift creating and strengthening the efficient neural pathways that your body wants to use and your body. I was just listening to uh, Nick DeMarco from Elon today on a podcast and, you know, talking about, about unilateral training and it just, it, it makes so much sense when you think about what unilateral training can do for your body because most people, and he gave the squat example that I've given a million times, but if, if you watch people fail in the squat, they never fail through their legs. Like you don't someone and oh my God, they just threw that right through the bottom. The yeah. bar goes over the top. They fold up, you know, they lack whatever we want to call it, tor- core strength, yeah. torso strength, the ability to stabilize the load. So one of the things that I've always said that people have criticized me for is that squatting, bilateral squat, limited by trunk strength. It is not limited by leg strength. And when we started looking to this bilateral de- deficit stuff, we realized that because all our athletes – we're handling unilateral loads that were far in as of half of what they could handle bilaterally. Like, you know, we'd take a guy, you know, we will routinely have guys that can split squat, say, you know, 250 or 240 pounds, you know, 120 dumbbells, they can split squat those. And these are not guys who are going to squat 480 for 10. They're yeah. not going to be able to, then you get into even more of it. So the guy that's been kind of intriguing me lately is this guy, Alex Natera. Alex is a, uh, they get Australian rules football strength and conditioning coach, but he did a really interesting study when he was, he was at um, Aspire in um, I think, I think they're in Doha or Dubai or something like that. But at Aspire, they did this study. What I did, which is beautiful. Like when you, you talk about um, read rain, David Epstein's book, um, his second book, but in range Epstein talked this, what he calls undiscovered connections. 
So Natera starts trying to figure out the, you know, he wants to figure out the effect of unilateral training. Because one thing that people would argue about fairly frequently was that, um, you know, okay, it doesn't really matter. Like, well, you're not really using half your body weight, whatever. You know what I mean? Like they try to come up with these half-assed arguments. So he went on and said, okay, how do I figure out, let's say, for instance, what is somebody's torso weigh? So he went to a study, a 1955 study on pilots. And what they were trying to find out was what was the weight in the seat. Sorry. Very good. I have, now I have my wood stove going in. I'm getting a little smoke out of my wood stove. So I was like, I got to close that up. Um, <laughs> but so this pilot study wanted to tell you how much weight is in the seat of the plane for a pilot. And they determined that I think it was 68% of your weight was basically butt up. You know, what would be in the seat okay. uh, of an airplane. So then the Terra does the, the math and says, so that basically means that 32% of the weight is your leg, right? Or your legs, yeah. simple logic. Yep. But then he said, okay, if I do a one leg squat with body weight, I am now using 84% of my body weight because I've got one leg that's basically yeah. hanging loose plus the weight of my torso, right? Then he started doing force plate analysis. And I mean, to make a long story short, what they came up with was that the idea that someone who could do a one leg squat with 50% of their body weight in ex external load. Okay. So someone like me say, I weigh 180. You know, if I can do a one leg squat with, you know, whatever, weight vest, dumbbells, whatever I'm doing, if I can do 90 pounds, it's going to make, give me the equivalent force of a double body weight squatter. And if I can get to the point where I can do a hundred pounds or a hundred percent rather, that would make me a triple body weight squatter. And they actually did force plate measurements. I think with guys having them do, you know, double body weight and triple body weight squats on a force platform. To, to measure the relationships. So one of the things that we've really started to do with our athletes now is try to push them. Like our first goal is 25%. Our second goal is 50%. And then obviously, you know, 75, hundred, you know, I don't, we haven't had anybody get to hundred, but we've had a, a bunch of guys get to 50 and watching 50%, you know, we're using, you know, we've been like doing Zercher sandbags. We've been doing all kinds of stuff, trying to figure out how to get the load, but we've been able to really push this bilateral deficit idea and realize that, um, what we want to effectively be is we don't want one plus one to equal two. We want one plus one to equal something that is higher than two. So, you know, right leg squat plus left leg squat should equal more than two leg squat. That's kind of, so that was a, that's a long bilateral deficit. deficit. No, that's, that was, that was awesome. Um, wow. Um, and then, I'm, I'm, wow. Um, I think to me, what's also most very beneficial about this is the wear, the, the less wear and tear and on, on the body because you're having oh, to, to load but it was, that's where, um, that was where we were going initially mm -hmm. was for less wear and tear. We were doing this because of the back injuries, but then we suddenly realized that, wait a second, we're lifting weights far heavier than what we expected these people to be able to lift. And that was when we really started to explore. I have one of my, uh, Robbie Bork, one of my former interns, who's an Irish guy. He's, it's really funny because I was asking about bilateral, def bilateral deficit. And he says, look in the Comey book that's on your desk on page 84. He said, it's in there. 
And of course, I flip. I don't know if it's eighty four, but I flip into the Comey book, and I realize the bilateral deficit research is all in there. And like Comey, who was a Finn, had written about it probably, probably pre, pre two thousand. He probably wrote about it in the nineties. And so you you realize that this stuff, um, you know, it's it's out there. It's been out there, but we don't. Um, it goes back to that you know Epstein's idea of undiscovered connections it's our job to kind of connect the dots and we're not good dot connectors in strength and conditioning or in fitness. We're really good copiers. Yeah. And you know, we don't want to be innovative and that's why even with Mark, I can always remember Mark with the EXO stuff. I loved Mark when I first met him because we were thinking on a very, very similar line, but what we were thinking about was at the time extremely conventional because we were saying that, you know, we weren't sure you know, if max strength was the answer and we thought that, you know, unilateral, just as you said, from a wear and tear from an injury prevention point, you know, when, you know, when someone was doing rehab, they didn't, you know, if you had torn your ACL, they didn't just start you doing two legged squats. Yeah. Right. You know, they rehabbed your injured leg. They, they, and then they started talking about because we want, you know, balance and stability and co-contraction and we want the pelvis involved. And I just used to look at that stuff and think, well, if that's what we're doing to get somebody healthy, yeah. isn't it logical that that might be what we're do what we would do to keep somebody healthy? True. If I wanted to prevent that same injury from happening, then I might want to take those same concepts out of rehab. And that's really what we did in the initial going is we took concepts out of rehab and we took concepts out of maybe track and field and some places like that, you know, same way when you looked at people and said, okay, if it's my job is only to get you to run faster or jump higher, then what are we doing? Yeah. And okay, this is what those people are doing. And I, the key, and I always talk about this, you want to, you want to copy it. Copying is okay. But you know, if I told you, you were going to, I always talk about this. Um, you know, I would teach cheating as my first class in school. If I was going <laughs> to, if I yeah. was going to college because, <laughs> and the first thing I would tell you is don't cheat off stupid people. Yeah. <laughs> in strength and conditioning, it's like, you know, we still fall in love with power lifters or Olympic lifters or, you know, people who have extremely different demands in their sport than what we have in the sports that we train. True. And so we copy them instead of copying track coaches. And what I did I, very early on, again, I told you I was a power lifter. Very early on, I copied the power lifters. But then I started to find like the, you know, the Don Chews of the world and the Vern Gambettas and the Gary Grays. And, you know, all of a sudden, all of my, um, you know, role models and teachers and people that I was stealing things from were people on the rehab side or on the track and field side, yeah. not just, you know, it, I was kind of like, eh, you know, the strength stuff is pretty simplistic. And in a lot of ways, the strength stuff just seemed to be a, a you know, a chemical warfare, like, okay, who could take the most steroids? That would probably tell you who's going to have the highest lift, right? <laughs> but that wouldn't necessarily tell you who was going to have the fastest sprint or the longest jump. Although, sure. Yeah, <laughs> there were no drugs in track, but yeah. it was not really that simple. There was a little bit more that was going into it. So I kind of gravitated towards that circle of people to copy from. And then I was very lucky. I, I found, you know, I found Mark, I found my kindred spirit. You know, he's like my, I said, he's like my, my little brother. I, you <laughs> know, I met him when he was 30 and I saw some of the stuff that he was doing. And I thought this guy's, you know, he's on maybe a better track than I'm on. And I started to copy him. I, you know, I used to tell people, I was 40, he was 30. I had no problem with, you know, looking at things that he was doing and thinking, hey, we need to incorporate some of this stuff in what we're doing. Sure. Because the key to evolving your program 
is that continual process of stealing other people's stuff, right? I mean, you're continually looking and saying, who's doing this better than me? And then how can I incorporate what they're doing into what I'm doing? Yeah. And I think a lot of that just, it, a lot of that is just pushing your ego to the side. And that's, I was, I was lucky enough to, to be, uh, to intern and to still be mentored by, by Joel Gunterman. And that's, that's one of the first things he's, he ever taught me. Like, if you're going to be good at, if you're going to be good at what you do, especially in this field, like learn to push your ego aside and learn from the best, or in your case, steal from the best or cheat off the best. So no question. I remember, um, you know, you know, has since passed, but we went to a Charles Poliquin seminar and Charles wasn't always the friendliest guy. He wasn't always the easiest guy to get along with, but he was extremely bright. And he made some points at this seminar. And I said to a couple of my staff members had gone with me. I said, when we go back, we've got to rewrite all our workouts. Cause at that point we were doing the conventional, like three sets, you know, do a set rest, do a set rest. And Poliquin was one of the first guys to start to really espouse like the AB kind of, exercise, you know, A1, A2, A, you know, B1, B2, whatever, however you want to set it up, which was really actually an Ian King idea from Australia, but Poliquin, you know, grabbed it and brought it here. And I told our guys, I said, this is going to make us way more efficient. If we can pair our exercises and use our rest time, you know, we, we started talking about the idea of we can increase the density, the number of, sets. you know, I, used, I said to them, if we rest three minutes between sets and we have an hour, we're limited to to under two sets per hour. Yeah. So that's just that's math. And that's without even accounting for the exercises themselves. You know, it'd probably be more like you know, 16 sets that you'd get done in that hour. I said if we pair exercises, we suddenly now are capable of doing 30 in an hour, really, if we wanted to. And so, you know, back and and they were like, we're gonna rewrite every word. And I'm like, yeah, every word. We're gonna rewrite, we're gonna write basic blitz with this, you know, A1, A2, B1, B2 kind of thing. And, and we're going to pair everything up so that we can be more efficient. Because at that time, again, if you think of college strength and conditioning, we had uh, at Boston University, we had 30 sports, people begging to get in the weight room, begging for time. We were constantly trying to figure out, you know, how do we get people in and out of here more efficiently? And so we did. And it's the same way, you know, I went and heard Stuart McGill talk back and said, hey guys, we, you know, all the crunches, right? the shit we were doing before that's all gone and it was saying that what are you talking about and i'm like well i just heard like probably the smartest guy in the world on you know whatever you want to call it low back pain core training whatever however you want to express this he's telling us that's right so that's all out put you know all of a sudden you know we're going to plank and side plank and you know whatever bridge we're putting all this stuff in in place of the sit-ups and crunches and you know crap that we did before at the end, you know, instead of doing, you know, our workouts used to, at the end, it would say, you know, abs times a hundred, you know, and you could do bicycle crunches, like you do whatever you wanted, just do a hundred somethings, you yeah. know, for your abs and we'll call it a day. And instead we started about, you know, extension exercises and anti-lateral flexion exercises and rotation exercises, whole new kind of lexicon to what yeah. we were doing. But I think that's, that's what progress really is. Progress is continually going out and finding the best people and stealing their stuff. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I, I, I still see, I, I still see what, uh, 
the back squat as one of the movements that people are the most in love with and they're more most resilient to like just not to get rid of their program and yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's yeah. difficult it's difficult for sure and um i was actually it it, it blew my mind the other day because i'm i'm doing the lift certification right now for dvrt and i think josh added in there yeah for sure josh added in there how we we weren't uh, really back squatting for training up to 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 a certain point it was more of a like a exhibition of strength so like for those of you that had no idea what i just said so back in the day not so long ago actually the only time we've ever put back uh, weight on our back was whenever we were trying to, I guess, show off or like the strong men were in town, et cetera, et cetera. And you were trying to test your strength. You would put it on your back. You would do your one rep or whatever. And then you would set it back. You put it back um, on the rack or wherever, or wherever it was. But back squatting wasn't a method of, of training for strength or just training at all because putting stuff on your back isn't necessarily the best thing to do. So yeah, I was I was mind blown by that, but people are so resilient to like stop back squatting. I I don't understand why. Honestly. Oh, that's, yep, that's, that's you know that's our field being. I mean, we still have the same resistance to change. Yeah, and, you know, and it's funny. I talk to a lot of guys now. I think I was probably might have been '04 when I first said that we weren't going to back squatting, and it was amazing the backlash. You know, and but I get people all the time who still will come to me and say, oh, yeah, I, in 2004, I thought you were crazy. <laughs> in 2012, I started to think you were smart. <laughs> for, for eight years, I really didn't like you. And I'm okay with that because, it, you know, you have someone has to go first, right? Someone, yeah. <laughs> someone has to be the person who says, I'm going innovate. I'm going against the grain. I'm going to do something unconventional. And I just, you know, for me, I, I said to me that I never cared. Like I was never, the only people that I worried about what they thought of me were the athletes that I was training. I was never worried about what another coach thought. I, I never even dawned on me that there's some coach someplace else. When I started to realize, you know, that's the internet, the ability to, to realize that people were bad mouthing you <laughs> because up until that point, I didn't really know that. Like sometimes like you don't, if you don't ever communicate with somebody, you don't know that they hate you. But then, <laughs> you know, with YouTube and Twitter and all these things, you know, people could post their their hatred and their dislike and make like one of my, uh, a guy who I've become friendly with, I still tease him, you know, if, if you, uh, if you Google functional training is bullshit, his video on YouTube will come up, you know, him as a young coach <laughs> talking about functional training is bullshit. And, you know, this, you know, the go heavier, go home kind of thing. And, and now he laughs about that, but <laughs> I mean, speaking of the whole social media thing, I don't think I've seen anyone get so much backlash like you the other day when you posted that video on burpees and there were some really long explanations on there. And the, I was going through the comments. It was insane. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same thing. It's like, because I just say what I think and I'm not worried about again. Yeah. You know, do I care? Guy in San Diego hates me. Absolutely not. You know what I mean? Like it makes no difference to me. It doesn't change my life. And it, in fact, people, you know, accuse me of all people who don't know me, accuse me. Oh, you're doing it for likes. You're doing it to sell videos. You're doing it. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm doing it honestly uh, out of a sincere desire to educate people. That's the only reason that I'm doing it. And 
So the good part is it makes me, it puts me in that situation of I could be like, I could care less. It doesn't matter to me at all what anybody else thinks. And the good thing is the older you get, the, the easier this. I mean, when you're young and you're worried about getting a job or keeping a job or whatever that is, maybe you have to be a little more conservative or more tight-lipped or whatever it is. But when you get to be like me, like you're Swan, you own your own business, who cares? Just, so people don't like me. I always say, I'll come home and they'll be, my wife will still like me and my kids will still like me, my mugs will still like me. And if that happens, I, I'm I'm good. I'm right with the world. That's that's where we should all aspire to be because the, the the world is the world's mean and like if you guys if you guys ever do have a chance to go on coach Boyle's uh instagram and and look up that that particular post people were posting some nasty things and then they were going through some extremes to justify the use of the burpee which made me even laugh more when they're trying to justify yeah. coaching falling or I something love it. I, I- yeah, I think it's funny. Like I look at that sometimes and I think, oh my God, it's it's hysterical how far people will go. Rather, it, it's so much easier. And go, maybe I was wrong. Maybe this is a bad idea, man. <laughs> but in our field, instead, we'll go to all types of extremes to continue to try to justify why they're doing what they're doing and how it's wrong. Hey, we got to go. I think it's, uh, yes. I'm, I'm a little, a little past my time. Closing <laughs> yeah. question. Didn't get to sneak in. <laughs> Pardon? The closing question. The closing questions. You didn't get to sneak in. The, I, the closing question is just, uh, if, if you were, if you were to, um, say something to your younger self, what would it be? Um, I don't you know. More than likely. One of the things I would probably say is don't change much because things have worked out. Okay. Um, I think a lot of, you know, there's many decisions that I made that maybe were made for me that didn't work out, but things in the end, I think if you stay honest, you're going to be okay. If you make decisions for the right reasons, you're going to be okay. And I feel like I've always done that. I've never, I've never sold out. I've never tried, you know, um, to, I've never done anything that I would look at and think, oh, that was unethical or that was illegal or was immoral or whatever it was. And I think the net result at the end has been a really positive one for me. So I would just be like, Hey, you know, just keep trying to do coach Parker, who was our hockey coach at BU for years would always tell our guys, just worry about doing the next right thing. And I always liked that, you know, it's like that idea. Okay. Just try to do the next, you know, cause you're going to screw up things. You're going to, you're going to do something. There's something you'll make mistakes. But if you look at it and think, okay, what's the next right thing that I can do in this situation, you'll probably be okay. True. True. All right, Coach. I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, we're gonna call it here. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Um, and I, I look forward to seeing you speak soon in person. Hopefully this year we'll get some yes, lucky. We get back uh, on it. All right. Right. Thank you. Very much. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, coach. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.